chapter 3. We're going to read uh, verses 14, 15, and 16. As we continue our study of this book together tonight, we basically reach the half, halfway point of the book. There's six chapters in 1 Timothy, and we're going to finish chapter 3 tonight. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, beginning at verse 14. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. About 50 years ago, it was uh, actually in 1975, there was a church that was started in Chicago, Illinois, by basically going door to door in that suburb and knocking on the door and, and asking people one question, what would you like to see in a church? What would you like to see in a church? And they knocked on all these doors for a period of weeks and months. They compiled all the answers that they got, and, and they went back, and they basically designed a church that was all around those answers. And so whatever it is that, that people said, and, and they probably you know, did a, a graph and a poll and all these, whatever the number one answer was, number two answer, they took all these answers, and they started a church called Willow Creek Community Church, that was started on that basis. What would you like to see in a church? Now, I certainly think that uh, a church should be friendly. We, we would hate to be known as an unfriendly church. I, I certainly think that a church should, should care about its community. Hopefully, we, we care about the community in which we live and the community in which we live all throughout this Central Valley area. But I don't think it's a good idea when a church lets its community dictate the kinds of things it's going to do or not do. If I asked you the question, what would you like to see in our church? How would you answer? What, what, should, what should Zion look like? If, if we were just starting this church from scratch, uh, what kinds of things would we want to see in a church? More importantly, though, what might God say to us in his word that, that would help us to, to shape the ministry of the church? That, ultimately, that's what matters, right? We, we want the church shaped according to Scripture. And our passage tonight is a, is a very short one. It's only three verses, but I think it's a very instructive one because it, it shows us two things that... that we should be pursuing as a church. Number one, it talks about the church's guide. And number two, it talks about the church's focus. The church's guide and the church's focus. Uh, Paul has just spent the first part of this chapter talking about leadership in the church. He's, he's talked about the qualifications for elders. He's talked about the qualifications for deacons. And, and if you've been here, you remember this, this is really important. The emphasis is on character. It's not on giftedness. It's not on influence. It's not on wealth. It's not on business acumen. 
The, the emphasis is on character. The men who lead, the men who serve as office bearers, are to principally be known for their character. They are to principally be known for their godliness. Well, it's at this point that, that he writes what he does now. In the first part of verse 14, he says, I hope to come to you soon. Now, now remember, um, Timothy is a pastor in Ephesus. And, and Paul is hoping to visit Ephesus quite soon. He, he had been there back in Acts chapter 19 when the church was planted, but he wants to come again soon. Now, we don't know if he ever made it back. The, the New Testament is silent on that. But, but Paul says, I'm writing this letter to you in case I can't make it, in case I'm delayed, in case I can't come to you as soon as I hoped, I'm writing this letter to you. And, and it's now that he, he lays out the real purpose for this letter. He, he says, the reason I'm writing to you, Timothy, and this is the key verse in the whole book, verse 15, I'm writing so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And we ask that question, what should the church look like? First Timothy tells us exactly what the church should look like. Paul writes this letter so that this church in the first century in Ephesus and all down through the centuries might know how to conduct itself. And and remember, this is not mere human literature. This is not like, I remember when I was in college and seminary, there was a a plethora of books on church growth. And and so you'd go to the, the local Christian bookstore back when those things existed and, and you would go to the, the church section, and there would be a big section on church growth. There would be books by guys like George Barna, if you've ever heard that name before, Bill Hybels, uh, some of these other guys, Wynn Arne, who was a big guy in church growth movement. And, and you would read these books to try to figure out how to grow your church. Uh, this is not like one of those books. This is not mere human literature. There was a lot of bad stuff in those books, but not in this book. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed. Every word in your hand tonight is the very word of God. 2 Peter 1.21 says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And, And so the first thing we want to understand about this tonight is that what Paul writes here is the very word of God. This is not his opinion. This is the word of God. And the point is that the church of Jesus Christ, whether it's in the 21st century or the 1st century, whether it's in North America or the Middle East or wherever it is, the church is to be governed and guided by Scripture. Not the latest trends. Not what we'd like to see. Not what the general public tells us that they'd like to see. But the church needs to be governed and guided by the word of God. You know, one of the, one of the foundational commitments of this church, and, and this, this goes all the way back to when this church was started over 25 years ago. Not all of us were here back then. Probably most of us here tonight were not here back then. But when this church was started over 25 years ago, the commitment was to the infallibility and the inerrancy of the word of God and the authority of the word of God. And and I don't think that commitment has changed in 25 years. And and we pray that that God would continue to to bless Zion with with leaders and with members who are 
continually committed to this essential truth that the church of Jesus Christ is to be directed and governed by the Bible. This is important too for our children to hear, for our young people to hear, you know, as our, as our children grow up, as our young people grow up, as they uh, maybe go off to college, maybe they move out of the area. Uh, we need to encourage them that this is one of the things you must look for in a church. This is not optional. Is the church that you're attending committed to the authority of the Bible? And so the church is to be governed by Scripture. Now you'll notice that, that Paul goes on and he lays out three truths about the church. He says, first of all, the church is the household of God. In the Old Testament, the, the tabernacle and, and later the temple could rightly be called the house of God. You, you remember in 2 Samuel 7, uh, David was, was tired of seeing God worshipped in a, in a mobile structure in the tabernacle. He wanted to build God a more permanent house. And, and so he goes to Nathan and he says, I, I want to build God a more permanent house. And you, you know the story that it was Solomon later who did that. But you know, up until that point, God's people had worshipped in this mobile building, this, this tabernacle. And, and David wanted to build this permanent structure. Now, now it wasn't that, that God was limited in his location. It, it wasn't that, that God was just limited in the tabernacle or in the temple. God is infinite. He's, he's present everywhere. No limits can be placed on him. Uh, but the temple was, was God's house in the sense that that's where God met with his people. But it's different today. Technically, this is not God's house. Now, I know sometimes we refer to it that way, but technically it's not God's house. In reality, we are God's house. He dwells within each one of us. There's, there's no longer this, this one specific, special location where God meets with his people. Whenever and wherever God's people assemble together for worship, it doesn't matter if it's in Ripon New York City, Turkey, Nicaragua, the Philippines, the jungles of Africa, whenever and wherever God's people meet for worship, God meets with us in a special way. God is present with us. And, and this is why it's vital that God's word direct our worship, God, God's word direct our church, our, our living, our life together. Paul says the church is the, is the household of God. Secondly, notice he says the church is the church of the living God. Remember, um, Paul is writing to Christians who were living in a place that was dominated by idol worship, dominated by false gods. In, in particular, Ephesus was the, the home of the temple of Diana, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Some, some people say it was the most amazing of the seven wonders. It was an amazingly impressive structure where these people would come together to worship Diana. But the fact of the matter is that, that Diana was nothing but a dead, worthless, lifeless idol. As we heard this morning from Psalm 115, Diana had a mouth, but she couldn't speak. Diana had eyes, but she couldn't see. Diana had ears, but she couldn't hear. Diana had a mouth, but she couldn't talk. Diana had hands, but she couldn't feel. She, she had a nose, but couldn't smell. She was nothing. 
in contrast with that, think about this. Paul says, the church of Jesus Christ, which, which, which often meets in the most unassuming of places. I mean, you've seen churches that meet in, in storefronts before. You've seen pictures maybe of churches in, in third world countries that, that meet in some place with nothing but a dirt floor. The most simple and, and basic of places, nothing like the temple of Diana. But when God's people assemble together, even in a building that is utterly devoid of beauty and grandeur, the living God is there. This is the same thing that, that David confessed about God this morning in 1 Samuel 16, that that, that our God is the living God. Don't ever forget that. Our God is the living God. We serve and, and we worship and we belong to the one true and living God. He's still at work in this world. Nothing will ever stop his plan. And, and our hearts should break for those who are trapped in idol worship, for those who are, are serving lifeless gods, whose hearts are, are given over, whose affections are giving over to those who can do nothing for them. By grace, we serve the living God. In addition, this phrase, the church of the living God, reminds us that the church belongs to him, right? This is his church. This is not my church. This is not your church. Now, I know we often refer to our church that way. You'll, you'll be talking to a friend and you'll say something like, well, you know, at my church we do this. But again, when it comes right down to it, this, this isn't our church. Long after we are gone, Lord willing, this church will still be here to proclaim the gospel. And, and being that this is God's church, being that this is the church of the living God, we, we want to make sure that we do things his way, according to his word. And so the church is the household of God. It's where God meets with us. Uh, the church is the church of the living God, not the dead God. And, and third, notice the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. It's important to understand the, the meaning of these two words. Both of these words refer to something that that um, supports something else. Uh, pillars support or they, they hold up a roof. Uh, a really good uh, Bible illustration of this is um, Samson. You remember Samson, right? The, the super strong guy with the long hair. Uh, near the end of his life, uh, he's been taken captive by the Philistines. There are the Philistines again. We saw them this morning. Philistines take him captive, and, and they, they celebrate the fact that they've captured the Jewish strongman. And, and they, bring, they bring Samson out near the end of his life so that he might entertain them. They've, they've gouged out his eyes. He can't see. They, they've bound him in chains. And, and they go, let's, let's bring Samson out here, and maybe he can do some feats of strength for us. And, and they bring him out, and, and you remember, he's standing between these pillars. And, and these pillars are, are massive pillars. They're supporting this large roof. And on this roof, there are 3,000 people standing on this roof. And, and you remember what happens. Samson prays to the Lord. He says, Lord, give me the strength so that I might avenge what they've done to me. And, and you remember, children, what happens. He, he grabs those pillars 
and, and he brings down the whole house, killing a, a massive number of Philistines. The, the point is, is that, that pillars in Scripture support something. They hold something up. The same is true of the word buttress. Uh, a buttress is something that, that supports a building. And so Paul says here to Timothy, Timothy, the church is the pillar and buttress. It is the support of the truth. In other words, that's one of the things that the church should be known for. That the church shouldn't be known for denying the truth. You can go to a lot of mainline liberal churches today, and that's what they're known for, denying the truth. They're, they're fine with same-sex marriage. They're, they're promoting LGBTQ rights. They're, they're doing all this stuff that's contrary to Scripture. They're denying the truth of God's Word. There's even one um, denomination who, not too long ago, said that it was wrong to sing the song we sang a little bit ago in church before, In Christ Alone. You shouldn't sing that song because it's too, it's too narrow-minded. And, and so it's easy to find churches today that deny the truth, but the church of Jesus Christ is to be known for supporting the truth, standing up for the truth. Now what Paul says here would have been something that the, the Ephesian Christians could have easily related to with this whole idea of pillars because when they were in, in the city of Ephesus, the, the temple of Diana had over 100 pillars that held up this massive marble roof. And, and so when Paul says the church is the support or the pillar of the truth, the Ephesian Christians would have thought, aha, I know exactly what he means by that. The church is to hold up the truth. A church that will not hold up the truth is a church that will eventually collapse, that will no longer be a church. One author says this. He says the purpose of pillars is not only to hold the roof firm, but to thrust it high so that it can be clearly seen from a distance. Just so the church holds the truth aloft so that it is seen and admired by the world. Indeed, as pillars lift a building high while remaining themselves unseen, so the church's function is not to advertise itself, but to advertise and display the truth. That's our job, isn't it? Not to advertise ourselves, not to promote ourselves, but to advertise and promote and uphold and support the truth of the Word of God. The Word of God is the church's guide. And so that's the first thing Paul tells us about the ministry of the church. It is the Bible that is to guide us, the Bible that is to direct us, not the pastor's opinion, not the elder's opinion, not the congregation's opinion. We're not going to poll you to see what you would like to see us do. It is the Bible that is to guide us. Now we see the church's focus. At, at this point, we come to verse 16. Uh, many scholars believe that verse 16 was, a, was an early creedal statement that the church confessed. Uh, one of the reasons that, that we have creeds is because we believe that they're found in the Bible. There, there are certain statements in Scripture that, that have kind of the, the flow, the, the poetry almost, of a creedal statement, kind of like the Apostles' Creed. It's like this in verse 16. This was probably a creedal statement, maybe even a hymn, but, but it's something that the church confessed as true. And, and Paul starts by saying, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. 
You ever read that and thought, why, why does he put it that way? Well, there's, a, there's kind of a play on words, I think, with something that the worshipers, worshipers of Diana said in Ephesus in Acts 19. Paul, Paul went to Ephesus on his first visit, and, and he's there and he's preaching the gospel. He's preaching what we preach. There's only one God. There's only one way to this one God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and the whole city of Ephesus is thrown into an uproar because they worship Diana. They worship a false god. They, they believe that, that all roads lead to God. And so they're very upset. They, they don't like that, that Paul is, is basically saying, your goddess Diana and her temple are nothing. And so all these people in Ephesus get together. There's like 20,000 of them. And do you remember what they start screaming? They start screaming, great is Diana of the Ephesians. People people get upset when you tell them that their gods are nothing. People get upset when you tell them that their gods can't save them. And so here it's like Paul is, is taking what the Ephesians had been saying in Acts 19. Great is Diana. And it's like a little play on their words, and he, he's saying, let me tell you what true greatness is. True greatness is not Diana. True greatness is not your false gods. True greatness is the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness is a phrase that, that just talks about God's plan of redemption, that God has unfolded throughout Scripture. Paul says that's real greatness. Not Diana, not your temple, not the false worship of the Ephesians. But Jesus Christ is true greatness. And now he goes on and he gives this, this marvelous hymn. He gives this marvelous creedal statement about who Jesus is. And, and notice six things, what he says. First of all, Jesus was manifested in the flesh. Children, this, this early creed begins with Christmas, doesn't it? it? It begins with what we call the incarnation. That the second person of the Trinity, very God of very God, we confessed that a moment ago from the Nicene Creed, took on human flesh and blood. And, and you read the Gospels, and you see very clearly that, that Jesus was truly human. He, he didn't just appear to be human. He was true man. He was hungry. He slept. He, he cried. He bled. Now, why is it important that, that our Savior take on human flesh. Very simply, most of you know the answer to this, we need a Savior who is truly human. Man sinned. Man must pay for man's sin. If our Savior is not truly human, we're lost. We're dead in our sin. And so Jesus took on true humanity, and, and Jesus' humanity also means that he can sympathize with you. You ever go through something in your life and, and you think to yourself, no one can understand? No, no one can understand what I'm feeling. No one can understand what I'm thinking. Jesus Christ understands. He sympathizes with us. We, we should really love what we're told in Hebrews 4.15. It says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He understands. And then it goes on and it says, let us then with confidence 
draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are. It doesn't matter your, your understanding of, of all reformed doctrine. It, no matter where you're at in your life, you can go to Jesus. He, he understands. He sympathizes with you. You can go to his throne of grace because in his true humanity, he, he understands all that, that you go through. And he will give you his grace. He will give you his mercy to help you in your time of need. Secondly, Paul says Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. That The word vindicated can also be translated confirmed or, or declared. In other words, Jesus was confirmed to be who he claimed to be. He was declared to be who he claimed to be by the Holy Spirit. We don't want to miss that, you know, when you read the Gospels, all throughout the Gospels, um, we read of the spirits accompanying the ministry of Jesus. Children, do you remember when Jesus was baptized, that the Holy Spirit descended from heaven like a dove? The Spirit was present. When, when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, we are told that it was the Spirit who led him there. Jesus himself said that it was by the Holy Spirit that he cast out demons. We are told in in other places in the New Testament that that the Holy Spirit um, demonstrated who Jesus really is in his resurrection. Paul says in Romans 1.4 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. By, by raising Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit confirmed or, or declared that, that everything that Jesus did and said during his earthly ministry was true. You know, if Jesus is still in the grave, he's a fraud. He's a liar. Or as C.S. Lewis said, at, at worst, he's a lunatic. But, but when Jesus rose from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit... All that he said was proven to be true. Where's Muhammad? Where's Joseph Smith? Where's Buddha? They're all dead. They're all in the grave. We worship and we serve a risen, living Savior. It was demonstrated by his resurrection, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that everything he said is true. Third, we are told that Jesus was seen by angels. Angels are, are found throughout the ministry of Jesus. When, um, uh, when Jesus was born, children remember there was, a, there was a choir of angels singing. Angels ministered to Jesus after he was tempted by the devil. Uh, when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane shortly before he was crucified, we are told that an angel was there to strengthen him. An angel announced to the women that Jesus had risen from the dead. Angels were present when Jesus ascended into heaven. And angels continue to see Jesus today as he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Fourth, Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. You all know that that before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave his church a commission. He said, go into all the world, Matthew 28, and make disciples of all nations. Teach them obedience Baptize them. This is what I'm calling you to do. 
He said in Acts chapter 1, the the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you and, and you will be my witnesses. I want you to go to Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, and I want you to proclaim the truth about me. And when you read the book of Acts, that's exactly what they did. They went out and they preached Christ among the nations. They made disciples of all nations. And we have to remember that that work didn't end in the book of Acts. It continues on today. The the church still has the calling. We still have the calling as Christians to proclaim Jesus in this world. Our message is not just for one specific group. Our message is for all nations. Number five, Jesus was believed on in the world. In other words, God was, is working through his spirit by his gospel to bring the elect to saving faith. We, we sometimes have this very pessimistic view of missions. Uh, we kind of have this um, Eeyore attitude about the, the work and ministry of the church. Uh, but the mission of the church is not a failure. God will bring. He will bring all of his elect to saving faith in Christ. This means we can do evangelism with confidence. It means we can do it in his strength, knowing that he will accomplish his purposes. And then number six, Jesus was taken up in glory. He ascended into heaven. And, and one day, as the angels said in Acts 1, he's going to come again. In the same way you just saw him ascend to heaven, they said, he's going to come down one day. And so this is this this early Christian creedal statement. And and I think it's a reminder to us that this is to be our focus. Our our focus is not some nuanced point of theology. Our, Our focus is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. This passage is, is short, three verses, but, but there's so much here. We, we are the church. And, and as we gather on the Lord's Day, the, the triune God meets with us. He is the living God. He is the true God. We belong to him by grace. And in the ministry he's given to us, his word is to guide us. His word is to direct us. We are to support the word. We are to, to, to guard the word, stand for the word. And the focus in all of this is the gospel. The one who came to earth, took on humanity, lived for us, died for us, rose again as a testimony that all that he said is true. He ascended into heaven. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's equipped us to go into this world. He's given us a commission. And one day he will return. That's what God wants to see in his church. A church guided by scripture. A church focused on Christ that does all of this for the glory of God. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you tonight for the opportunity again to study your word. Uh, Lord, it is um, a large task to carry out the commission that you've given to us, and yet we know that we have your spirit who will lead us and guide us and strengthen us. We pray, Lord, for Zion that this church will continue to stand for truth, continue to be guided by your truth, and continue to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ above all else. We pray in Jesus' name.